Welcome to Rex's Bible Minute, a weekly video where we talk about Jesus, Christianity, and anything else. And we are in 1 John chapter 4. We missed last week because of the holidays. Um, I hope you all had a good one. Uh, my family and I celebrated together, and it was, it was wonderful. Um, and it was nice to take a break from things. Um, but I'm also really excited to get back into it. Um, we're going to be in 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 through 21. But since we did have a week off, um, let me just recap very quickly. Um, some of the, the ideas. To, to this lesson today specifically, this section we're looking at, uh, you kind of have to recap, um, but let's let's recap the context very, very quickly. It's written by the Apostle John, same guy who wrote the Gospel of John, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, the Revelation of John. Um, this was Jesus' cousin. He was one of the apostles. He was one of Jesus' inner three, Peter, James, and John. It's that guy. Um, so he was there when Jesus did his thing. He was there at the cross. Jesus actually looked at him and said, hey, take care of my mom, which is a big deal to us today, but it was a massive deal back then. Um, and John is writing at the end of the first century. And so this means that Jesus did his thing in the 30s. We're seeing massive change on a global scale, especially within the Roman Empire during this time. There's riots, there's civil wars, there's earthquakes, there's, there's Mount Vesuvius happened. Like all these insane things are happening during John's lifetime. And he's coming towards the end of it at the end of the first century. And he's starting to see uh, cultural Christianity get corrupted. It's the same problem we face a lot today. We see the world's messages and the world's ideas creep into doctrine and into theology and into Christian practice and corrupt it and make it something that's very not Christian. In John's day, he's fighting against Platonism and the early beginnings of Gnosticism. Um, but he's, that's what he's fighting against. And so he's writing from Ephesus because he's had to flee uh, Palestine, Jerusalem, um, and he is he's, he's writing to you know second third generation Christians so that's what this letter is it is that you know it, it's a circular kind of sermon letter to be passed around to start to combat this this cultural corruption um, of of the Christian faith he's kind of leading a revival at this point um, which is again strange to say that in the first century Paul came and did his thing you know led this big like wave of of new Christians and then there was this falling away from a apostolic doctrine, good, right doctrine, and now John's leading, you know, a great revival all within, you know, 60 years of Jesus. Um, and the last thing I want to mention before we get into it is just a reminder of John's strange writing style. John is a brilliant writer. If you read Revelation, even from a non-Christian view, if you're just a secular person reading the Revelation of John, it is is brilliant. The writing style is brilliant. Um, and so John has a, a very peculiar way of writing. He, he's very repetitive, and if you understand this, you'll understand his other letters, including uh, Revelation, a lot better. John goes to topic A with a little bit of topic B, and then he'll go topic A, topic B with a little bit of topic C, and then he'll go A and B and C with a little bit of topic D. And he just keeps repeating this thing, and he almost always makes love the main topic, topic A. Um, but he just he has this repetitive style, and it's it's very beautiful, and it's very dense in what he packs into his writings. Um, and so last week we ended with talking about how do we tell a, a false prophet, a false teacher, a false Christian, someone who's claiming to be Christian, how do we tell them from the real deal people as best we can? So we talked about that. And we talked about how essentially the the litmus test for determining if somebody is is part of our family, part of our group as Christians, part of God's people, is do they deny or accept that Jesus is the Messiah, that he did come in the flesh, that he did live amongst us, that he really did what he said, all those things that we called um, orthodox doctrine, not not orthodox in the Greek or Greek 
church sense, but in the sense of orthodox meaning right doctrine. Um, and so we kind of ended with that. And that leads us to this week, starting in verse 7. So let's read this whole chunk, and then we'll go through and uh, break it down and, and show us and learn a little bit from it and see what God has for us in today's passages. So starting in verse 7, it says, Beloved, let us love one another, because love is from God, and all who love are fathered by God and know God. The one who does not love has not known God, because God is love. This is how God's love has appeared among us. God sent his only son into the world so that we should live through him. Love consists in this, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the sacrifice that would atone for our sins. Beloved, if that's how God loved us, we ought to love one another in the same way. Nobody has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is completed in us. That is how we know that we abide in him and he in us, because he has given us a portion of his spirit. And we have seen and bear witness that the Father sent the Son to be the world's Savior. Anyone who confesses that Jesus is God's Son, God abides in them, and they abide in God. And we have known and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love. And those who abide in love abide in God, and God abides in them. That is what makes love complete for us, so that we may have boldness and confidence on the day of judgment, because just as He is, so are we within this world." There is no fear in love. Complete love drives out fear. Fear has to do with punishment. Anyone who is afraid has not been completed in love. We love because he first loved us. And if someone says, I love God, but hates their brother or sister, that person is a liar. Someone who doesn't love a brother or sister whom they have seen, how can they love God whom they haven't seen? This is the command we have from him. Anyone who loves God should love their brother or sister too. So, Let's start by acknowledging and pointing out what the point of this passage is and really what the whole point of this letter is. Love. John uses the word love 27 times in these 14 verses. And all of them are a particular word for love. And that word is agape. Now, this is probably one of the most preached sermons. Every pastor does it at least once a year, it seems like. But there are four words for love used in the New Testament. Koine Greek, the ancient version of Greek that they used to, to write the New Testament, um, it has more than four words for love. Uh, but th these are the four big ones. Um, eros is, is romantic love. It is, you know, the husband and wife kind of love. Um, Storge is is family or kinship love. So that's love with, you know, be, be, with like, you know, your brothers and sisters and your mom and dad, like that family sense of love. Philia is is the, the best friend kind of love, like that real affection you have for somebody, the brotherly, sisterly love, you know, your best friend, the, the you know, your, your bromance kind of love. Um but the one that John uses here to describe how God loves us and how we should be loving each other and how we should be loving God is agape. And that is unconditional love. And it's based on a choice. It is based on choosing to love somebody, not because of who they are or because of how they love you or how they treat you or how they act. It is a choice to, to love them no matter what. It's not dependent on them or their actions at all. 
And it's important that we understand that's what John is talking about. He's not talking about like affections, you know, feelings are a part of it. God made us to have feelings. I know some of us like to pretend that he didn't or that feelings are bad, but God God made us to have feelings. Emotions are a part of who we are and what we're designed to be. We're supposed to have them, but they're not supposed to be the driving force in our decision making. They're supposed to be a part of it, but they're not the driving force. The driving force ultimately is, is your brain. You're, you're choosing to love somebody. And God chose to love us, not because he felt like it in the moment, because as you well know, emotions change. They come, they go. It's, it's, it's not something that should be the driving factor in decision making. And so agape love is choosing to love someone because you choose to. And it's not dependent on them. And it's nothing they can do to lose it, right? That's agape. That's true agape love. But it also is an action. John talks about in this passage a lot that, that you have to love your brothers and sisters. And he's not just talking about, you know, I choose, you know, like sometimes at church, like you'll, 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 you'll find people that frustrate you. And you're just like, oh, I love them, but oh, that's it. Like, I don't like them. Like, no, that's, we're getting into the, the, where it gets hard. And we're going to talk about that a little bit, that Christianity is not easy. But agape love means you, you that choice to love your brother and sister in Christ, your Christian brothers and sisters, it, it has to show up in actions as well. And we talked about that two weeks ago, I believe. And what John points to over and over is the clearest example of, of that is Jesus on the cross, that you and I don't deserve the sacrifice that he made right? That he went, he was suffered, he, he died. We just came through the Christmas season where we talked about that at our church, that, that, that the, the ultimate point of, Chris, of Christmas is Easter, and that Easter was just Jesus took on the world's punishment on our behalf, even though we didn't deserve it, and we never will deserve it, and we can't deserve it. That's agape love in its purest sense, that somebody would die for another regardless of whether they've earned it or not. And in our case, none of us have. And so that's what John is pointing to. And we're going to talk about that a little bit more in a second. Um, but that, that's kind of the foundation, that this is the love that we're talking about, this agape love. You know, everything that we're, we're going to discuss from this point on is built on an understanding of that. So if you don't understand agape love, you need to stop. You need to go look up in a Bible dictionary, get on the internets, look up agape love until you truly grasp it as best you can. So you have a working knowledge. None of us can really fully understand it um, in the sense of how deep God's love is for us. But we have to look, uh, we have to have that basic working knowledge of, of what it means. So that being said, let's let's get into a little bit of commentary here. Um, it's funny. Uh, if you look at the world, the world loves to just destroy itself. It loves to eat itself, right? Like if you spend five minutes watching the news or listen to people on social media, like we love to, to just bash each other and hate on each other and hurt each other and, you know, on a global scale, murder each other, kill each other. Like the world is full of hatred and yet... Some of the biggest songs in history have been all about love. And I'm not talking about like romantic love. Like we're talking about the one love, you know, like the world idolizes love. I mean, think about something like One Love by Bob Marley or All You Need Is Love by the Beatles or Come Together or Imagine by John Lennon. Like these massive, massive songs are all about love. But yet the world still can't figure out what love is because it doesn't know love. That's John's point here. He saw it 2,000 years ago. We see it today that the world may sing the songs about love over and over, but they don't know what love is. In verse 8, it says, God is love. Not that love is God. 
I, I love that commentary here. I believe it was the Life Application Bible Commentary. Um, but it, it, it said that, that, that the world would say love is God, even though it continues to hate each other. It idolizes love itself. But the reality is you can't know what love is unless you know God. And so that's, that's a big difference that we as Christians have to admit and have to understand is that while the world may say it loves love, like love is everything, all you need is love, it doesn't know what love is. True love is agape love, and it has to be the badge that we wear as Christians, that we choose to love each other even though we don't like each other sometimes, that we choose to love each other even though we don't always get along, that we choose to love each other even though we may not know each other. That there has to be a sense of agape love amongst all Christians around the entire planet. Yes, we're going to disagree on some things, right? We all, not everybody has the same theology, you know, and I don't have the same theology as I did five years ago. Like, you know, individually, we don't all agree on the same things, even within our own heads. So, you know, you can't expect everybody to agree exactly on everything, but we have to have that agape love. And it's, it, it's kind of a, a big black eye for the church, just how quickly we forget this. Like, that how, how many times people go to church and they stop going because the church was full of nothing but people fighting amongst themselves over things that don't matter. I mean, the church's biggest harm to its witness, its ability to share the love of Jesus is itself and the way it treats itself. The way we interact with each other, it's it's shameful. And I've been part of those situations and it's, yeah, why would an outsider look at that and say, yeah, I want to be with that. There's something different there. No, it's most of the time it's worse. As Christians, we have to wear the, the ID badge of agape love towards each other. As That has to be the way the world sees us, the, world, the way the world understands us. And it, it just it doesn't because we don't act like that. Like we have to have that attitude of Christ died for each other, even the people that are difficult, <laughs> that you disagree with. Christ died for them too. And we have to remember that so we can't treat them hatefully. We can't be hateful to each other. And it's not a modern thing either. Paul has to deal with this over and over in his letters of Christians fighting amongst themselves, whether it's in uh, the city of Corinth or in Galatia or, you know, the region of Galatia. Like just all of his letters, he's always dealing with, with Christians fighting with each other. So it's not like this is a new phenomenon, but just my plea to you, if you get nothing out of today's message but this— Love each other, even when it's hard, because being a Christian is not easy. So uh, what I want to do right now, I want to kind of shift gears a little bit, is I want to like, let's, let's, to understand that we have to kind of recap John's entire argument up to this point. I mean, essentially, it's been that Jesus is the Messiah, and he has actually come in the flesh, and that if you deny this, this means that you are not of God. And if you claim to be a Christian and you deny this, you are a false prophet. That's kind of a big chunk of it. Then he says that true belief and faith that in this is a symptom of genuine Christianity. Right? So it's not that that is like the litmus test of are you a Christian. That is the symptom of being a Christian. Belief in the Jesus as God himself, revealing himself and God's character to us, and that a character is, is agape love. And 
as little Christ, it's our job to continue the work of, of sharing the image of God and his character to the world around us and, and continue the work of reconciling the world to himself, of creating a people for himself. That is, that is, that is the, John's entire argument up to this point. And so the, the, that last part of continuing the work, being the hands and feet of Jesus, of God, of, of reflecting his image into the world around us, that's why it's so important that we remember this as Christians. Because if we don't remember this, John here is pretty clear that puts us outside the family, right? That puts us outside of being a Christian of, of God's people if we hate each other. That's a scary thought. And so as we continue on, verses 9 and 10, um, basically this, this section, these two verses, we see the answer to a lot of the big questions that we can have about God. Um, and the answer is, is always that agape love. God chooses to love us, right? So, you know, for example, why did God create? Why did he create us? Because he loves us. That's the answer. Why did he create us? Because he loves us. Why does God care about us? Because he chooses to love us. Why do we have free will? Because he wants us to love him back. And you can't have that unless you have free will to choose to love him back. Why did Jesus have to die? Because God loves us. Why, did we, why do we receive eternal life? Because God wants to spend eternity with the people that he loves. Love answers a lot of those questions. But it's important to always remember that God's the one who loved first. That makes a big difference. And it doesn't seem like it, you know, in a personal relationship, it doesn't matter who loved each other first. You know, my wife and I, um, we kind of have this debate of, of who initially who initiated um, asking each other out. Uh, I asked her if she liked coffee with the obvious intention of, hey, I'm going to ask her to go on a date to coffee. If she says yes, if she says no, I'll ask her to go out to eat, you know, just kind of I can ask her out either way, but I, I, I can know. You know, kind of like I thought it was a pretty smart setup, right? Um, but then she says, yeah, I like coffee. You want to go out to get coffee sometime? She stole my line, right? But I set it up and she, you know, so obviously I'm the one who asked her out first. But in that kind of situation, it doesn't matter who's, who, who liked each other first, who loved each other first. Um, but with God, it matters very much so because if God created us and didn't love us and then started to love us later, that means somehow we earned it. And that defeats everything we know about God. God loved us first. He started this ball rolling. And our response to him is to love him back. Now, that doesn't mean God excuses sin. That doesn't mean he's, you know, we get this, this weird image in our head that love means we can't discipline somebody. We can't tell them things they don't want to hear, that we just have to make sure that we don't offend them. Like, no, real love offends. <laughs> real love can be very offensive because if it's the best thing for somebody, you absolutely have to offend them. So God doesn't excuse sin. He's not morally corrupt. He very much is still, sin can't exist in my presence. So that gets us to verse 12. And this is, uh, again, the Life Application Bible Commentary. I just, they knocked it out of the park on this section. Um, they they, they kind of talk about how, you know, introverts and extroverts have different expectations with how they interact with the world, right? An extrovert is somebody who gets energy from being around people. They love being in crowds, they love meeting people, talking with new people. And for a long time, especially in recent history, that's what the ideal model of a Christian has been held up to be, right? To be this extroverted person who goes around and tells everybody about Jesus and builds relationships with everybody and just has this supernatural amount of energy to go and talk to everybody and share the gospel with everybody and just everybody, everybody, everybody. And 
every introvert has, hears that and basically is like, well, I guess I'm not going to be a very good Christian. I personally am an introvert. I've always been. Um, I've actually become a little less introverted in recent years. Um, but, you know, my, my default mode is, is, is silence and, and alone. Like, you know, that's, that's kind of my, my, my status quo. Like, that's where I go to recharge because being alone recharges me. Being around people it tends to exhaust me. That doesn't mean I don't like people or I don't like talking people or I don't like crowds. That's not what that means. It's not what being an introvert means at all. It just means you draw energy from, from, from being alone instead of being around people the way an extrovert does. Verse 12 gives the introvert hope because God commands us how much to love people and not how many people to love. Let that sink in, that, that God commands us to love each other with, with agape love, to love brothers and sisters of Christ with agape love, not how many people to love. Like we don't have to be the person that goes around and shares Jesus and builds relationships with absolutely everybody. As a matter of fact, I think there's an argument to be made that it's better to have a few really strong discipling relationships than a thousand very weak ones. But basically verse 12 gives introverts like me uh, means to celebrate, that we don't have to be what we've been told for a long time, that we don't have to be this extroverted person to be a great Christian and to, to be what God created us to be. And that gets us to, to the very end. We're going to wrap this up. There's so much more to this section. We could spend two hours on it. Um, but, but verses 20 and 21 basically summarize all this to say that it's, it's easy to love God if all it costs you is an hour on Sunday morning. Maybe even some money on the offering plate. But that's, that's, that makes loving God pretty easy if that's all the more it costs you. But to be a Christian means that when nobody's looking, you hold to the morals of Jesus. It means that you go the extra mile to help people who can't, help, can't repay you. It means you, you love people who are difficult to love. And you do it with kindness and compassion and gentleness. Loving God is difficult. And that's kind of the theme throughout today's entire section is just that loving God is not easy. God loves us first and he calls us to love people with the same love that he loves us. And that is an incredibly high standard. And if we claim that we love him, but we don't aim for that standard as honestly and truly as we can... John says you're probably not part of the family then at that point. And so I'm not saying that just because you have a failure a week or you treat somebody badly that you're out, you're done. But, I'm, but as we see that and we remember that, we have to repent of that and choose to love God and love people the way that God loves us. So I hope this was encouraging and helpful and, and motivating to you. If you have any questions, as always, reach out. Otherwise, see you next week.